The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So after this week, we'll do an introduction to the prophets this week. Next week, we'll go back to Song of Songs, and then we'll start going through the prophets. So we'll do Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations at the same time, Ezekiel. Frank will come back and make an appearance for Daniel, and then we'll have maybe two to three weeks on the 12. So today, an introduction to the prophets, and we're doing that because uh, we're entering a new section. So we did an introduction to the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We did an introduction to the wisdom literature or the poetic section. And we're going to do an introduction to the prophets today. And it's it's really, I I think, necessary. Uh, These are not the first prophets that we've encountered in our study of Old Testament survey, right? I mean, you remember the book of Kings. The most prominent figures in the book of Kings were two prophets. They had the centerpiece. It was Elijah and Elisha. Uh, but uh, so we've we've had prophets, um, but not our first writing prophet. So even before we talked about the in the Hebrew uh, approach to the scriptures and their canon, the Joshua, Judges, and Samuel and Kings are all classified as prophets. They're the former prophets. The idea is that there's this vantage point of the exile. And a group of those prophets look back on the former things and explain what happened and why God didn't show mercy and why they're in the situation they're in where they're scattered and in exile. And then there's a group of prophets, the latter prophets, who look forward to the latter things when God is going to have mercy again and renew Israel. But again, not the first prophets, but certainly the first writing prophets, and we are introducing an important section. Even before the former prophets... Christian had to help me with this earlier, so he may have to come back up and help me again. Even before, okay, looks like it came back on. Even before uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, we've had prophets, even prophets that talk about later events. Who before Joshua was a prophet that talked about later events, events of the last days? Moses is is one. In fact, I, I'm going to we'll have you know maybe four or so. But Moses, from early on in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, laid out the framework for what was going to happen to history, I guess, but to, to Israel for sure. He said in Deuteronomy 30, it'll be when all these things have come upon you. So he's already been talking about what's going to happen to them, how they're going to inherit the land, but they're going to be obstinate of heart, and God is going to have to judge them. And he says, when all these things have come upon you, both the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you think about them and all the nations when Yahweh, where Yahweh your God has banished you, and you return to Yahweh your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today and your sons, then Yahweh your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you And will gather you again from the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the ends of the earth, from there Yahweh your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land into which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your children to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. 
And Yahweh your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you will again obey Yahweh and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then Yahweh your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and in the children that come from your body and in the children of your cattle or the offspring of your cattle and the produce of your ground. Yahweh will again rejoice over you for good just as he rejoiced over your fathers. So Moses... Early on, thousands of years, a thousand years before they were exiled, had already sort of laid out the events that were going to take place, even the final event of their receiving a circumcised heart and coming back and being blessed again in the land. Even the idea of him having compassion on them, that's important language, because remember, that was the point of kings, is God said in Hosea, we'll get to that when we study the 12, I'm not going to have compassion anymore. I'm going to take away my compassion, my mercy, I'm going to let them be judged. But he says, through Moses... Early on, I'm going to have compassion one more time on them. Circumcise their hearts, bring them back into land, bless them, put their curses on their enemies. So Moses, way early before... So in one sense, it's funny that we're just now sort of introducing the latter prophets because Moses talked about this much earlier than that. But Moses wasn't even the first, right? Who before him spoke of latter events? In fact, Moses, I have his number four here. Think back in the first five books of the Bible and... There, were, there was revelation given to people about latter events. In fact, I, I thought of another one this morning that's not on here. But you're not talking about Genesis 1-3 where he says, I will, I will... No, not thinking about Genesis. That's a good one, though, right? About the, I mean, there's at least a, a short statement of the cursing of the, of the serpent, and the, so that, that would count as well, although I, you know, that wasn't directly, I guess, to a prophet. prophet or, yeah, that. right, right. Enoch, I got it. So we skipped one. Enoch is going to be number one. That's right, Enoch. And how do we know that Enoch prophesied about end time events? It says in Jude, right? When we studied Jude, Jude says Enoch, even though he was the seventh generation from Adam, talked about what was happening in those days. He, he prophesied. And we don't have that, you know, Enoch's history in the Bible is very short. We just know he was, he was a man of God. He walked with God and God took him. But there are traditions that have been passed down through various means and even into apocryphal writings that talk about Enoch's predictions of what would happen in the latter days. So Enoch is number one. What about in between Enoch and Moses? Jacob. Jacob. An entire chapter, Genesis 49, is devoted to all that's going to happen in prophetic language to the 12 tribes. He's on his deathbed, and he gives a prophecy uh, of all that's going to happen to each of his children. Genesis 49 is an entire chapter devoted to it. The other one I have is a little bit of a trick. Uh, the one I thought of was like Balaam. Balaam has some uh, you know, futuristic prophecies about what's going to happen. But Job, we recall, you know, talks about what's going to happen when he's restored to life. Even if he dies, he knows he'll be able to see his Redeemer. And then Enoch. Uh, obviously Abram, Abraham, others. Even David is before. David uh, prophesied in many of his songs and in other places. But despite all of these sort of, I'll say minor, prophets, uh, you know, who gave a little bit. I mean, Moses wasn't a minor prophet, but he only gave a framework of the future. He sort of really, ten verses, high level, here's what's going to happen. And Jacob, an entire chapter, but still just one chapter. The reason why we're introducing the prophets now is because now we're going to get a payload of information about the future. I mean, it's going to be some of the largest books in the Old Testament um, are going to be devoted, all of it, or much of it, to the, to the end times, to what's going to come going to fill out what Moses has already... Moses said, you're going to be new heart, circumcised heart, you're going to come back to the land. 
after all these things come upon you, they're going to give lots of details about how that's going to happen. The other reason that I think it's helpful to do an introduction to the prophets, even though we've had uh, prophets, is they're really hard. We were just talking, Andre and I were just talking about this. Andre was just teaching uh, in the jail uh, a lesson on the minor prophets and on Zephaniah. And uh, it's really hard. The prophets are hard. Let me just give some examples. Uh, Actually, before I even uh, give examples, let me just at a really high level explain why I think they're hard. Um, When you think about prophecy, if you were to say at the highest level or at the base level, what is the point of it? What's the purpose of prophecy? Why does it exist? What's the point? Okay. Warning, Andre says. Reveal God's uh, plans and purposes. Okay. So to reveal unknown things about the future. Those two things are very true. I don't think it's the I don't think it's the main reason. And I don't know if I'm right, but I'm up here so I get to say. <laughs> think about um Think about this question. Think about an analogy. What was the main point of the exodus? Why did it happen? Why did God send his people into slavery and then bring them out by a mighty arm? To display his power. That's right. You could say, well, the purpose of the exodus is they're not supposed to be there. They're supposed to be in the promised land. So the exodus was there to get them out, and that's true enough. But there's a, a number of verses. We can. I'm, I was in Deuteronomy just a second ago. I'll, I'll, I'm not far from Deuteronomy 4, Joshua 2, Romans 9. All of these verses indicate that a, a major purpose, maybe the major purpose of the Exodus was to reveal God's power. Deuteronomy 4, 34. Has a God tried to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors, as Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown so that you might know Yahweh is God and there is no other beside him. The Exodus here is indicated the point of it was for Israel to understand that he is God and that there is no others. So in one sense, the point of the Exodus was so that Israel could know. And, and read Joshua 2. We have heard... How Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. And when we heard it, our hearts melted. So not only did Israel learn from the Exodus that God was the only true God, the Canaanites learned it as well, right? And if I'm fast enough up here to turn to Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So to the Israelites, to the Canaanites, indeed throughout the whole earth, the purpose of God raising up Pharaoh and doing what he did was that people would know his power. And I'm going to argue that prophecy is the same thing, but not about power. About what? Wisdom or knowledge. Or we could say if the Exodus is about omnipotence, prophecy is about omniscience. Right, and I think, you know, we can validate that. Let me. And there's scriptures as well. I I don't think the prophets warned people. There's no question, and that was a key part of why they did what they did. And 
it's unquestioned that they announced things and and revealed things that needed to be known that weren't known. All those things are true as well. But I think a, a, a big, the big, I don't know, a big portion, purpose, excuse me, of prophecy is to show, reveal God's omniscience. This is Isaiah 44. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. There is no God besides me. There is no other rock. I know of none. So Isaiah, or God through Isaiah says, I, there's nobody like me. And you can tell because I say things ahead of time. Who else can do that? Let me see you do that. No one else can do that. Isaiah 42, 8 through 9. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will give my glory to no other, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. So in the context of he is unique, alone, nobody like him, no one with the same glory, he says, I'm telling you things, I've already told you things that came to pass, and I'm going to tell you new things that are going to come to pass. Isaiah 41, it's a very common refrain. Present your case, Yahweh says, bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to happen. As for the former events, declare what they were. To me, that's an amazing statement. And that's a fair statement. Like, there are a lot of things that happened in the past that I can't tell you about. I wasn't there. Maybe if they're not written down, you know, I'm, I'm not privy to them. So even the former things, to be, the ability to say what happened at creation, for instance, just that by itself, it's, it's no, the future we think of is this unknown, you know, thing that hasn't happened. Well, the past is just almost as much unknown as the future, except that some people have written some things down and we can read about them. But God says, I, I tell you the forward things that's going to happen and the former events, I can declare what they were. You do it that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to happen afterward, so that we may know you are gods. If you can declare the things that are going to happen, we know you're gods. That's the point here. Do good or evil. Do anything so that we can tremble. You're of no account. Your works are nothing. He's talking about the idols that the Israelites were turning to. So all of this, again, is in uh, support of why the prophets are hard. Uh, and the, the first reason that I'm almost about to say, the highest level reason, is because the point of prophecy is to warn, to declare things that don't, we wouldn't know otherwise, but also to demonstrate God's omniscience. Think about the Exodus. Think about the first plagues and miracles that were done by Moses, by God, by the hand of Moses. What happened? The very, just the first ones. Do you remember what happened when they did them in front of the Egyptians? They did them too. That's amazing to me to read that. Like, I like magic. I think magic is really cool. <laughs> and they did some magic tricks. Uh, essentially, some, they had some amount of way to sleight of hand or some power. They copied some. Now, granted, our snake ate their snake, you know. <laughs> I get it. But still, they did some amazing things. Yes. Could that have been just by empowering demons? Could be by power of demons. It talks about in the future, Thessalonians, that there's God, God's going to give the ability to deceive through those kind of miraculous 
miraculous things that will be done by the power of demons. Yes. I don't know, but it was amazing to think that they anteed up. They were like, hey, we can do that. And they did it, right? To a point. And then God was like, okay, let's keep going, right? And then they were like, tap out. You know, we can't do this. That must be God, right? But think about that now in the realm of omniscience. Are there fake, are there alternate forms of prophecy? Absolutely, right? I mean, I, I think if I were to say that Clemson was going to beat Georgia Tech this year in football, no one would declare me a prophet, right? I remember it would just be like, Duh, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe not, yeah. But, you know, some people can, can, can say things. And we even have our own Nostradamuses and uh, people that have, you know, declared things about the future, right? So what does that mean? What did God have to do in the Exodus? He made his miracles even greater. So how's God going to do that in prophecy? He's going to declare new things he talks about, things you wouldn't expect. I'm going to read the last one from Isaiah here in just a second. If I were to say Appalachian State is going to beat Michigan by a blocked field goal, I don't know if you all remember that game. Like, now, if I'm predicting that, then maybe there is something to my prophecy. If I just say Clemson's going to beat Tech, then there's nothing to it. So sometimes prophesying harder things or new things or things you wouldn't expect shows uh, your omniscience more than if you were just to say, Something simple that everybody might expect. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. Something like that. Listen to Isaiah 48. I declared the former things long ago. They went from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze, therefore I declared them to you long ago. God knows that people have a tendency to be uh, hard-hearted, hard-minded, unwilling to follow him. So he did this long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them, lest you should say it was my idol who did that. My graven image commanded it to happen. You have heard, look at this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago. And before today, you have not heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew you have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago, your ear has not been opened, because I knew you would deal very treacherously and you have been called a rebel from birth. So our obstinance as a people, or Israel in this case, but as a human race, uh, requires that God speak in a way that things are hidden, things are new, things you wouldn't expect, right? Otherwise, what would we do? We'd say, hey, I knew it, or I, you know. No, we, God has to speak in a way, he has to reveal things in a way that show that no one else knew. No one had a clue. No one knew. God only knew. But then it happens, and you look at it and go, oh, and you can look back and say, oh, God knew. He said this, right? So that by its very nature, the reason I'm going to all this trouble, is that by its very nature makes prophets of latter things hard to understand because of what the way God has to speak in order for that to be true. If you think about the way God has spoken through prophets, it's amazing. Think about all the people that could take credit for what is said, whether the hearers, the speakers, or the subject of the prophet prophecy. All of them could take credit for what's happening. And God has prophesied time and again in ways that the hearers didn't understand, the speakers didn't even understand, and the subjects had no clue. It, just some quick examples, right? Think about Abraham, right? He's 
the subject of this prophecy that he's going to have a multitude of descendants. He had no clue how that was going to happen. He's old. He's like, well, I better go find Hagar, right? No, <laughs> that's not the way it's going to happen. And he had no clue. He laughed when he heard the way that it was going to happen. Or Cyrus. Remember in Isaiah 45, there's so many examples from Isaiah. This is written uh, way, 150 years, 200 years before Cyrus existed. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. So he prophesies about Cyrus hundreds of years in advance. Cyrus had no clue that he was doing God's will. He came to Babylon and the doors open. It's a longer story. And God says here to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I mean, God is doing the things that he's, and he doesn't even know it. Or Alexander the Great, when he came to Jerusalem, the story goes, again, it may be apocryphal, but the story goes that when he came to Jerusalem, he was destroying everywhere, every place he ever went. No one could stop Alexander the Great. He comes to Jerusalem. The story goes that the, the priest came out and met him and said, we've been waiting for you, and showed him the uh, book of Daniel and explained it to him, and he spares the city is the way that the story goes. God spoke about Alexander the Great before he existed. But not just the subject of prophecies, even those who hear them don't always understand. Uh, example would be the, the first followers of Christ, right? I mean, they, he's declaring it to them, and they don't understand. They don't understand that he, th these things had to be. The most amazing is when the speakers themselves don't even understand what they're saying. Caiaphas is the easiest example of this because he was high priest that year. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die. He didn't know he was prophesying that. But even the Old Testament prophets, as we read in First Peter, they would study their own writings to see what the Spirit of Christ was indicating in their writings. Isn't that amazing? Like they knew that they were saying more than they were saying. They just didn't know what they were saying. And for God to be able to do that really shows his omniscience, but it also makes it really hard to study them. Because who are we to say that we're going to understand it all and that we're not going to fall for the hidden thing? Uh, we're not going to see so we need to have a certain humility when we approach the prophets because the point of it is to show that God and God alone knows. And there may be things that we don't see until the events take place, and then we can look back and say, oh, which is not, I love the prophets. It's my favorite part to, to preach on. But I think there's a, a measure of humility needed given that, that that's, I think, the point. Now, there are other things that make them hard. I'm going to stay in Isaiah. They use difficult words, you know. They use hard words. It's as simple as that. Isaiah, in 66 chapters, uses 2,200 different words. Not 2,200 not total words. 2,200 different words. So not like the 400 times and a 200 times. He uses 2,200 different words. And 240 almost words that are used nowhere else. It's the only time they're ever used. And that's particularly hard with Hebrew. With Greek, it's a little easier because you can go to other writings that exist. With English, it's not a big deal. Like I hear, you know, you hear young people use a word one time. I just Google it, you know. Oh, okay, that's what they mean when they say that. You can't do that with Hebrew, right? You, the, the, no other writings exist, and so it's very difficult. You can look at cognate languages. You can try your best. You can look at context, but it's hard. And Isaiah uses 240, it's almost like four chapters of words that are nowhere else, that we're in some sense guessing 
Not really, because again, there's cognate languages, there's similar words that use the same roots, but we're almost guessing, like, what does that mean? What does he mean when he uses that word? They use difficult imagery, imagery that we're not used to. Rahab. When's the last time y'all used Rahab when you were trying to explain something, you know? We have to go Google and figure out what is it, you know? It's not the images we use or curds and honey. I, I think we get in Proverbs where it says wisdom is like honey, you know? I mean, honey we get, I think, but curds, you know, I don't know. Most of us aren't uh, eating curds often and, and understand what is meant by that. Geography, um, there's a, a section in Isaiah 10 where the geography is important. And, you know, if I just read it to you, I think you'll be as lost as, as I would be, as any of us would be. He has come against Ai, he's passed through Migron. At Michmash, he deposited his baggage. They've gone through the past saying, Geba will be our lodging place. Y'all don't know where those places are, right? I don't, I don't know where those places are without looking them up. It's not, hey, he went through Knoxville on his way to Nashville and to Marietta, and he's in, like, it's just hard. It's hard uh, to even read them because... The words, the images, the places are all foreign to us. I would say the hardest probably, in addition to the high-level thing I said, is just very difficult hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, again, as Frank taught us, is the science of how we interpret, how we understand the meaning of something. The prophets are really hard, and I think it relates to the first thing I said. I think it relates to how God is revealing his knowledge that no one else can, can say they have. Again, we've studied Isaiah 7 in here. It's absolutely clear to me, as much as anything else, that Isaiah 7 is a sign, not a prophecy, and it's, the sign is given in Isaiah 8. There are very few things that I feel more confident about is that. At the same time, I feel very confident that Matthew is right, and not this Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, is right when he says that that was spoken to be fulfilled by the Virgin Mary giving birth. To Christ. So that leads me to a hermeneutic that says the prophets didn't always understand what they were saying. They were talking about their own time. And, and it's not like this is one. You go to Isaiah 8 and you have another one. Then you go to Isaiah 9, you have another one. This, this is the way it worked. They were speaking about events. They were writing about things in their time. And they didn't realize that the Spirit of God in them was indicating things that went beyond what they were saying. Andre just taught about Zephaniah. When we get to Zephaniah in the, in the jail, we talk about Zephaniah. If you get to Zephaniah, it is abundantly clear, I hope, I hope I don't say anything that was wrong or that you said differently, abundantly clear that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. He says it's near, it's coming, he calls them by name, but you read Zephaniah and the language is worse than the Noahic flood. He talks about wiping off all humanity off the surface of the earth. I mean, it's this cataclysmic judgment that there's no way was fulfilled fully in what he was clearly talking about. And surely Zephaniah, I don't know, this is artistic license here maybe, but surely Zephaniah read his prophecy and said, what does that mean? Like, I I, I thought God was speaking to me about the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, but I I feel like there's more there. What does that mean? You know, I think, artistic license, I think Zephaniah is questioning what he wrote because it clearly indicates more, and we'll get to that when we get to the 12, but that's a difficult hermeneutics. Even you've, you've heard, maybe, you've heard about Jesus taking the scroll, I think it's in Luke 4, he takes the scroll and he reads about how, you know, he's going to not, uh, he's going to be gentle, he's not going to, um, I hope I'm saying this right, I'm off the cuff here, 
He's he's not going to bruise a battered. Oh yeah, that's right. Spirit. No, I, I'm, I am wrong. I'm sorry. This is the one where he says, "The spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh." Then he closes the book, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and everybody looks at him. And what does he say? Do y'all remember? Today. This scripture has been fulfilled, and you're hearing what scripture has been fulfilled. Well, Isaiah 61. If you go to Isaiah 6, oh, okay. So Isaiah 61 was fulfilled when Jesus you know, came to Galilee, came to earth to release the captives to proclaim. And here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, freedom to prisoners, Proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. That's where he, what did he do when he got there? He closed the book. And he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in hearing. What is, wait, wait, that's the middle of the verse, according to the Hebrew reckoning. What's next? And the day of vengeance of our God. That's crazy. If that's the, I mean, if he would have read further, you know, that was not the day that God brought vengeance on his enemies. In fact, in God's plan, he was going to have years more. We're still waiting, God's final bringing of vengeance upon his enemies and ultimate restoration of Israel. And yet Jesus, in the middle of a verse, closes it and says, this was fulfilled in your hearing. It seems, the best I can understand, that what that means is, and you're in one verse in Isaiah, and half of the verse is fulfilled in the New Testament era of Christ on earth, and the other half is not. Well, that's hard. That's hard. Difficult hermeneutics and difficult structure. Again, this will be, I think, what, yes, Pat? Since we take a literal hermeneutic, would it be more difficult for us than other people who would be leaning more toward um, everything being prophetic? I don't think so. I think it's difficult for everyone. I do think that um, we have to be careful. Like, I know and people that I really respect and like a lot, you know, they'll say it can only have one thing that can be, you know, and I just, I struggle when I see Isaiah 7, for instance, or Isaiah 8 or Isaiah 9. I say, I don't know. I don't know that that's the case. I think that the prophets were speaking about something in their own time, and yet God is speaking beyond them. God is speaking through them of things that only he understands. So I I don't, I still think to describe it as a literal grammatical historical harmony, it still works. But we just have to understand, it's almost like, let me use a science, I'm not very good at science, but let me attempt to use a science analogy that just came to me, so it may not be good. <laughs> right? I like science. I like the scientific method. I like physics. I, I like, check me on all this, Anton. I like, you know, the fact that you can, what is it, force equals mass times velocity, right? I like that you, is that right? F equals MA, acceleration. Thank you. So I like that there's rules and things like this. But what happens, Anton, when you get towards, you know, the speed of light and things? Yeah, it's like things kind of change. Things go, you know, they change a little. Like you're, you're storing, and I'm sorry for using an analogy that probably doesn't communicate to most people. It's just the first thing I thought of. When you get to where you're, you're, you're hearing from God and he's, he's revealing his omniscience, like it's going to, things might just look a little different. And I don't want to, I want to stick like, I live here on this earth, and I'm, this is how God communicated to me, was in this language. I'm going to stick to grammatical, historical, literal, you know, symbolic when it's symbolic language. But we have to give God, I feel, a little bit of leeway to be able to say, oh, he was talking about Mahershal Hashbaz 
But God knew ahead of time that a virgin was going to give birth to a, his son, you know. So it's almost like, you know, the, the, the secret things belong to the Lord. Like there is a little bit of humility where we just kind of got to go. But also kings, what is it? It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Like we need to try, 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 try all that we can, but we have to recognize there's going to be things that we're just too limited until God reveals them to us. We're not going to know it all. I don't think it changes anything about our approach, our attempts, other than maybe gives us humility in it and causes us to ask and try to, you know, keep probing and seeking, not asserting more boldly than we ought to. I want to bold, I want to be bold, I want to, you know, talk, I want to warn, I want to use the prophets to warn about judgment and righteousness. I just want to, you know, I want to be, I don't know, I don't know how to put all those together, but hopefully as I'm saying it, even if it's not clear, hopefully the spirit of it at least is coming through. It is a difficult structure. Um, you know, there'll be a quote I'll put up here in just a second, but I think I could test a lot of you and I could say, all right, I'm going to go to Ruth, or I'm going to go to Genesis, or I'm going to go to Mark, and I'm going to cover the second half of the page. And you get to read the first, and can you tell me what's going to happen next? And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I know, I, I can figure out what's coming next. I think I could take you to almost any of the prophets, and I could do that, and you'd be like, I don't have a clue what's coming next. I, you can give me half of the answer, and I still can't tell you what's coming next. It's hard to know. Why did they go in that order? What did they talk about? And yet, I do think this is going to be the very thing that helps us as we talk through it, because they did use a structure. They did use a structure, and that's what's going to save us, because they're really hard writings. But we can look in their structure and say, okay, I think I see what they're getting at. They can be clues that can help us to understand the purpose. Isaiah is a really hard book. When you have the structure in place, I think it can make Isaiah open up very clearly. Okay, I understand what his point is, as hard of a book as it is. Here's the quote about structure. This is a conservative, not a evangelical, I don't know that they'd be an inerrantist, but a conservative theologian. He says, what makes these books, he was talking about Jeremiah, but all of the prophets, particularly, and one might say needlessly difficult, is the manner of their arrangement, or to be more accurate, their apparent lack of arrangement. The reader who meets them for the first time is likely to be quite at a loss. All seems confusion. There's no narrative for him to follow, nor can he trace any logical progression running through a running through them and binding their parts together into a coherent whole. No sooner, I love this line, no sooner has he grasped a line of thought and prided himself that he's following it tolerably well than it breaks off and something quite different is expressed. I think we've all felt that, surely. The impression he gains is one of extreme disarray. One can scarcely blame the reader for concluding that he is reading a hopeless hodgepodge thrown together without any discernible principle of arrangement at all. That's just a feeling. I don't believe any of that. We've just felt that way, surely. I think the arrangement of the prophets, the arrangement of the, of the Old Testament writings are some of the things that give me the most confidence and hope in God when I see it. It's just amazing to me how they have been arranged and how they've been structured. But I know this feeling. I definitely understand this feeling. And uh, as we finish, all I've done so far is tell you how hard it is. <laughs> Last slide on how hard it is. I think we would say that apart from maybe Revelation, and Frank's not here to dispute this, but apart from maybe Revelation, it's definitely, it's got to be the hardest section of Scripture. The Torah can be hard to slog through portions of it, but it's not hard to understand. I think the former prophets, their stories, we enjoy them. The Gospels, the Epistles. Epistles can be hard because they're principles, but they're, they're easy enough. I think Revelation's really hard. 
But the prophets, I think, are probably the ones, I even said to Andre right before we started, I think the 12, the minor prophets, are probably the least understood, the least well-known portion of all of Scripture, I would guess. At least for some, I would think you'd all, you know, I think a, a large majority of us would say they were probably the hardest books for us. So we have our work cut out for us in the prophets, and we should probably lower expectations about what we're going to accomplish. But we can, uh, we can learn and we can benefit from them, and I hope we will. Now, the prophets in the canon, uh, we, this is what we're following. We're following the English canon in this class. So you guys are all very familiar with this. We call them the major and minor prophets. We include uh, in them, in the English canon at least, Lamentations and Daniel. Lamentations isn't really meant to be included. I don't think, I think it's just so closely related to Jeremiah that it's put with it. I don't know if people that, that speak of it as a prophet, but Daniel is in our prophets. He's considered there's the major prophets. In fact, I think I have... <coughs> Yes. So, you know, we have, as it were, four major prophets. I would say Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the 12 minor prophets is how we think of it in English. That's not how I like to think of it, as you know, and how I'm not going to think of it as we go through this class. I'm going to use the Hebrew canon ordering. And in the Hebrew canon, it's not going to have Daniel or Lamentations. Those are in the writings, the, the works that were uh, given to the post-exilic community to help them as they awaited that final event, the final event that Moses talked about, the final event that the latter prophets talked about, their restoration, their circumcision of heart. The writings are how long? How long and where are you, God? <laughs> that was what was promised. It's the last thing. What's going on? And so Daniel speaks to how long. The, the Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, they talk about Ezra Nehemiah. We talked about how Ruth, you see God's invisible hand. Yes, we don't see his miracles. We don't see uh, the final events happening, but God is there. In the Hebrew, they have four. I won't call them major and minor. They call them former and latter, and they have four. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 that match with their four former prophets, which we've already studied. And this is the way we're going to look at it. And I think it's important because I think as much as we try not to lessen the importance of the minor prophets. It's impossible when you call them the minor prophets, in my opinion. Why do we call them the minor prophets? Because they're, they're shorter. They're shorter. That's right. We call them the minor prophets because they're shorter. And every commentary that's ever been written on the minor prophets, I've never checked this, but everyone I've ever read, says at the very beginning, we call them the minor prophets because they're shorter, not because they're minor importance. But we've all just said, none of us know what they are. None of us read them. They are less significant. And I just want to show they're not less significant. They have more chapters than any of the other uh, latter prophets. Almost the same size. I mean, it's definitely the smallest, to be sure, in words and verses, but not crazily so. It's not like comparing Jeremiah to Zephaniah or comparing Isaiah to Haggai, right? I mean, it's, it's about 75% of the other uh, sizes. So there, it's, a, it's a same size book. It has equal standing with those. In fact, we're going to learn as we go through that in the same way that the four Gospels talk about the same events, all from a different perspective, right? You have Matthew that presents Jesus as king. You have Mark that presents Jesus as servant. You have Luke that presents Jesus as human. You have John that presents, presents Jesus as divine. Or said differently, you have Matthew that writes to unbelieving Jews. You have 
Mark that writes to unbelieving Gentiles. You have Luke that writes to believing Gentiles. You have John that writes to believing Jews, all writing about the same events of Christ, all from a different perspective. That's what we have here. We have four different prophets all writing about the latter events, all filling out Moses, all providing a different emphasis. Isaiah is going to emphasize who is going to bring about these latter events, the person of Christ. That's why there's so many references to Isaiah in the New Testament because he speaks more than anybody about the person, about Christ. You have Jeremiah that's going to talk about what, which is the, the new covenant. How is this going to happen? God didn't show mercy. God's going to do it through a new covenant. I'll give you all the details of how it's going to be. Jeremiah does that. Ezekiel talks about where. You remember all these people were completely scattered. I mean, crazily scattered all over and only getting worse every year. They're getting farther and farther, although there's some return here recently. But where is it going to happen? Ezekiel makes it clear. First, I'm going to be with you in the exile. I'm going to be with you wherever you are, scattered. Ezekiel makes that very clear. I'm going to be your God with you. I will be with you in exile. And the return is going to be in Jerusalem. There's going to be a temple again. It's going to be in Jerusalem. So he focuses on where. And then the 12 focus on the all-important question of when it's going to be. So we'll get to all those here in weeks to come. Again, just trying to make us like the 12. Okay, as I think about, again, this is, I, I've said a couple times, I've even said it already today, but this is sort of, if you think at the highest level, what the sections of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, are about. The latter prophets are the hope. It's the future. It's the filling out of Moses' promises it's the New Covenant, and then the writings will come along and, and help them as they're waiting for that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the time period. This will be really important um, information for when we study the individual prophets. Okay, we studied this in Kings. We talked about how we could get these dates going backwards all the way even to Abraham's birth, but we're talking about the latter prophets, so we're going to be talking about latter events. and. These three events, and one more, are going to be extremely important for you to nail down in your mind. These are the four events, three are listed, I'll, I'll give you one more, the four events that serve as the touchstones of the latter prophets and the things that they speak about and around. So the northern kingdom's destruction in 722, the southern kingdom's destruction in 586, although there were three, as we mentioned, just like there were three returns, but 586 was the final and then Cyrus's decree to allow them to return in 539. There's one other really critical event in there that the prophets care about, and that's in 701. 701 is when Jerusalem was just about to have the same fate as the northern kingdom. Assyria surrounded it, 185,000 soldiers. And remember, Isaiah prays to God, excuse me, Hezekiah prays to God, and God sends an angel, destroys 185,000 Assyrians in one night, and they're spared. That's a very important event. Micah's going to talk about it. Isaiah's going to talk about it. So 722, the destruction and exile of the northern kingdom. 701, the sparing of the southern kingdom as Assyria uh, surrounds Jerusalem. 586, the destruction of the southern kingdom by Babylon. And then 539, the return or the ability for the Jews to return because of Cyrus's decree. Now let's take, uh, well, let me just show you again where those four groups, uh, the writings are not included here because the writings span as far back as Job, you know, which we said was a patriarch, all the way to Second Chronicles. So the writings are all across there. 
But there you see the Torah, the former prophets, and then where the latter prophets pick up. Now let's put the latter prophets onto that. So you'll see 722, 701, 586, 539. Those four are the key ones. I give you uh, a date before and a date after, but it's those four that they're going to congregate around, and I want to just show you where each of the prophets are. This will be very hard to remember. I don't expect you to remember it. But you'll see that, again, they congregate around those events, Malachi being an exception, the last prophet. Joel and Obadiah are not dated. Most people will date them very late. I will date them early. I think the 12 are in chrono roughly chronological order. So I don't put them up here, but I think of them as early on. So you'll see Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, Amos, all early, Micah with Isaiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, then Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You'll see the 12 are roughly chronological. You'll see that you, know, you have some before the northern kingdom, Jonah as an example, Hosea as an example, Amos all prophesying to the northern kingdom before their destruction. Isaiah and Micah, as I mentioned, that event at 701 is very key, very key for the future as they think about the future and what God's going to do in saving Jerusalem in the, the last days. And then you have those that proclaim the destruction of Jerusalem, God's unwillingness to have mercy any further. You have those that are dealing with those in exile, Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We're late, and uh, I, ha I need to wrap up, so I'm not going to read each of these. This was just to take the head of the 12, Hosea, and each of the other three major latter prophets. So these, are the, this, these represent the, the 12, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, just to show you where they prophesied to give you some key scriptures. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just blaze through that for time's sake. The last thing that I'd like to share is just, again, in, in connecting the latter prophets to what's come before, what comes after. So the latter prophets are going to use the Torah. They're going to warn Israel on the basis of them breaking the law of God. You're going to see it. Here's an example in Hosea where he's clearly referring to the Ten Commandments. Jeremiah, the same way, he's going to refer to the Ten Commandments. That's the basis of everything for them. They're, they're following that. You'll see that, you know, again, we'll go into this in detail as we get further, but there's this connection with the former prophets. The former prophets are the ones that showed all the covenants, remember? and then showed that God refused to make another covenant and left us, as it were, at the end of the movie theater with the credits rolling down, wondering what was happening. That's where they pick up and say, you're right, you were right to feel that way. There is going to be a new covenant, one last covenant that's going to be what Moses said. Your heart's going to be circumcised. And then you'll see the writings pick up the latter prophets. And again, the writings are all about waiting, God's miracles not being there during that time period, and wondering how long Daniel specifically is going to look at Jeremiah and he's going to pray to God, I'm, I'm part of this exiled remnant. Like, and I was reading in Jeremiah, and it said 70 years. And lo and behold, it's been 70 years. God, act. Please forgive us and act. It's time. He must have been thrilled to put two and two together, or 35 and 35, however you want to say it. He, he, got, he realized 70 was, was the number, and God says, no, 77s it's going to be. So it's going to be a while. You can close up the prophecy, seal it up. It's not for now. It's for the latter times. So the writings are going to pick up from the latter prophets and help the, the exiled remnant understand how long, understand what they should do while they're waiting. Okay, let me just read my notes and make sure I didn't miss anything, but I think we're done. Okay, so... Um, 
we will again we'll do song of songs next week which was a part of the writings um then we'll pick up on isaiah we'll likely do isaiah jeremiah ezekiel all in one week because it is going to be very high level um and then we'll the 12 it's a small same size again but because they're broken up so individually it just takes a little longer because you have to you have to kind of cover each one so even though it's one book it takes us two or three weeks to do the 12 so total of about five weeks and then we'll be through and i think frank is teaching hebrews yeah, is the last i heard so we'll see but we still I don't want to get us too far ahead we'll get we'll make it through the prophets and try to at least understand them at a high level and then uh we'll go from there so let's pray and then we'll be dismissed Lord, we do praise you for your all-knowing, for being able to declare the end from the beginning. In fact, you, you do much more than even just know it and declare it, Father. You are working everything according to the counsel of your will, which is even more amazing. I, I suppose it means that knowing it is not as hard when you're in control and when you're working all things out, uh, and yet doing it in a way, Father, that we feel free and we have freedom to, to choose. And it's amazing how you're able to orchestrate all that in your providence and in your power and in your knowledge. And we're left to only wonder how you do it and want to know you more and want to understand and want to walk in a way that's worthy of a God like that, a God who has all that power and uses it for our good, uses it to make us a part of his family. And so, God, we thank you for that grace. We thank you for the opportunity to be a part of that story, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would keep us holy, uh, holy and humble and caring about each other, bearing each other's burdens, and not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Hopefully, Father, this time through the prophets will help us remember just how high you are, just how majestic you are, and how hard it is for us even to tolerably uh, follow a line of thought. So let us not grow discouraged in that. Keep us just right where we need to be, Father, in uh, understanding, growing, learning, struggling, obtaining at times, succeeding, struggling, having your grace. Help us to be right where you need us. And then, God, please come and uh, transform us into your glory as you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen.